We continue with our series on Matthew, and we arrive at Matthew chapter 17. And so we begin our time by exploring the whole thing about identity, finding ourselves. And so how do we discover our identities? One way is to think of our lives as mountaintops and valleys. What makes us really happy may reveal who we really are. What makes us really sad or cry or weep may reveal who we really are. And we are a combination of our mountaintops and our valley experiences. So I want to ask you, as we experience uh, the pandemic now, COVID-19, coronavirus, all around the world, what's your, what are your feelings? What are your responses? What are your mountaintop experiences and what are your valley experiences? One of the valley experiences here in Singapore was the announcement that a very famous drink here called bubble tea will no longer be available across the counter. And that led to long queues the night before the next day when it was um, sh shut down and disallowed. And so that was a valley experience for many people. A mountaintop experience for many people was when it was announced that McDonald's would resume and open its stores after three, four weeks of closure. And take a look at this. Right. What we miss reveals a lot about us. And this is a queue. You can see the, the golden arches on the left-hand side, the queue of cars in the drive-in takeaway at McDonald's. My goodness, and at some places it just went on and the queue could be half an hour. The queue was two hours. In New Zealand, when this opened, some queues, they said, was three to four hours. People missing McDonald's, that was unthinkable before coronavirus, before this pandemic. And who took this photo? Uh, it was me because I was the car behind this car. So I have to confess that it, uh, it astounded myself that I could miss McDonald's so much. And what did that reveal of me, what I miss? That I'm such a westernized Chinese person. That I'm such a coca colonized person. That I'm such a McDonaldized person, if there's such a word. And who am I? Am I, am I Caucasian? Am I American? Am I Chinese? Am I Singaporean? Who am I? Our mountaintops and our valley experiences reveals a lot about us. So stories told, I was, I was cleaning uh, our place and found an article. And the title of the article was Perfect Moments and Perfect Days. And it tells the story of Eugene O'Kelly. Who was Eugene O'Kelly? Eugene O'Kelly was one of America's most powerful businessmen. He was the CEO of KPMG. And as a CEO of KPMG all those years ago, it was worth $4 billion, 20,000 employees, a century-plus-old partnership, one of America's big four accounting firms. And so he writes of his life, as the CEO, he was at the mountaintop. The world was at his feet. The world was his oyster. His life, his hecticness was, his diary was filled up 18 months in advance. In the 10 years, first 10 years of his marriage, while he was working at KPMG, he allowed me to read. For the first 10 years of my marriage, when I was climbing the ladder at KPMG, Corinne, his wife, and I rarely went on vacation. Over the course of my last decade with the firm, I did squeeze in two workday lunches with my wife, twice in 10 years. He missed every school function of his younger daughter. And with this hectic lifestyle, it never, it never crossed his mind that this was not the lifestyle that God designed him to have. Until one day, he sat in a doctor's clinic 
And at doctor's clinic, he got a different view, a different mountaintop view. Overnight, he found himself at a very different perch. He was sitting at a hard metal chair, looking across the desk at the doctor, whose expression was full of empathy for my liking. And the doctor leaned over to him and said, you have a brain cancer and it's a matter of months before you pass away. That diagnosis was in May 2005. By September 2005, he had passed on. So how did he spend his last months? He spent his last months, and one of the quotes was, one of my tasks before I died was to unwind, unwind, reflect, and unwind, especially my personal relationships. I wanted to do the very thing that wiser people advise us to do. And what's the wiser thing? To stop long enough to think about the people we love and why we should love them. This article is more than 14 years ago. But his memoirs written in the book called Chasing Daylight, How My Forthcoming Death Transformed My Life. My death transformed my life. It's not his me only his memoir. It could also be our memoirs of how we discover who we are, our true identity, when we take some time to reflect on our mountaintop experiences of what we think or imagine makes us really happy or accomplished and the valley experiences or what makes us really sad and cry and weep. When we come to Matthew chapter 17, you find the mountaintop experience of Jesus together with his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James and John. And then as he comes down from the mountain, we see him in what we call a valley experience. And when we tie the two things together, we get a full, complete picture of Jesus' identity. And I want to say to you, it is Jesus' identity and destiny that will determine your, your identity and my identity and your destiny and my destiny more than anyone else in human history or in the small story of your life. So, let us read again God's Word. An outline, a possible outline, of this chapter could go along these lines. Knowing Jesus and knowing ourselves. Finding Jesus and finding ourselves in relationship to Him. So for the first 13 verses, it's about Jesus' glory, the mountaintop experience of what we call His transfiguration. And then as He comes down, descends from that mountaintop experience with His disciples, we get a glimpse into Jesus' mission and Jesus' suffering for us in verse 14 to 23. And the final part about the temple text, a very strange passage of Scripture found only here in this Gospel, is about Jesus' faith. And that's from verse 24 to 27. Firstly then, a mountaintop glimpse of Jesus' glory. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, his brother, led him up a mountain, led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun 
and the clothes became white as light. And behold, there before appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So important thing to take note. He went and that word, verse 2, transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorpho, the, the, the root word of that, from which we get our English word metamorphosize. We change. And he was changed from within. It's like the glory started to shine from within and the disciples saw a different side of Jesus that they've never seen and will never see again until his death and his resurrection. And so he was transfigured before them. And what is this about the mention of Moses and Elijah? Some say that Moses is representative of the law, the Torah, all of God's revelation in the first five books. And Elijah is perhaps representative of the prophets, God speaking to his people of how they were going wrong in their lives and how to turn back. That could be true. But truer, I think, to the circumstances and the context is that Moses and Elijah were expected to appear when God's Messiah appeared. And so it's very important. And the Bible passages for this in understanding and knowing Moses the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So Moses himself speaks that one day in the future, God will raise a prophet echoing him, like him, that will speak to God's people. It is to this prophet we must turn and listen, beginning with Israel turning and listening. And then knowing Elijah a little bit, and this is found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So it could be that Moses is representative of the law, that Elijah is representative of the prophets, but in all likelihood, the two of them were expected to appear when God's end-time end time king is sent into the world to fulfil God's purpose of saving us from our greatest enemies. And so here is Moses and Elijah. And we do ask very important questions, right? There have been no sketches or no photographs of Moses and Elijah, how would they have recognised him? So it is in one sense self-evident from the Lord Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Possible explanations to this, he was so overwhelmed, he didn't know what to say, so he said what was on the top of his mind. Second possibility is that this was so glorious that for, that for Peter, he wanted to make the temporary glory a permanent glory. Whatever we do not know, verse 5 is the most instructive. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. To fully understand this, 
it brings us back, if we've been reading the Gospel of Matthew, it brings us back to the baptism of Jesus. And recorded in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, God says this. And why the repetition? Because it is a combination, or what they call a conflation, of two very important Old Testament Bible passages and lessons. And the two important Bible passages is firstly Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tells of God sending His Messiah. And all the nations are to bow down and make peace to God's Son, who is the Messiah. And the particular verse, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. It is God's beloved Son who will come as His end-time King to wind up human history and bring all and right all the wrongs and bring in God's eternal glorious rule over the nations and over every single person. The other passage on view is Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 onwards starts to speak about this figure. Which figure? This figure is called the suffering servant. The suffering servant, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And so God's chosen servant, though he's a suffering servant, is the one who God delights in. I will put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice, notice, not simply to Israel, singular, but to all the nations. Which means when you put the two things together, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, the son and the servant, the suffering servant, the glorious son and the suffering servant has implications for all the nations, for all time, for all eternity. And so, the punchline we mustn't miss is going backwards. We are to listen to this. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. More about that later. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw they saw no one but Jesus only. Now you start to pull all the things together. This is God speaking. This is God's voice. And what does God do? What does God say? Very, very important for us to realise. This is God's broadcast, final broadcast, or God's loud hailer to us. Moses and Elijah, yes, they were servants sent by God, prophets sent by God, raised by God to speak to His people temporarily at one time about their sin, about their need for salvation. But now, God has spoken to us finally through the final prophet who will speak the final word of salvation, God's salvation, not just of Israel but for all nations, leaving only Jesus, which tells us that it is God's word about Jesus being the Christ that really matters. And we are to listen only to Him. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? As we tune into this on a Saturday, on a Sunday, or any day that you listen to this on our podcast, on YouTube, what does this have to, listen, uh, have to do with you and me? Everything. Is there something that is speaking louder than God's voice to you?
something that is speaking louder than God's voice to you? Very important. No one but Jesus alone. Listen only to Him. Beloved and affirmed by God. He is the beloved Son of God. He is the suffering servant whom God delights in. He's approved by God. He's endorsed by God. He's affirmed by God. Let me ask you, what or who could be speaking louder to you than Jesus? And whatever or whoever is speaking louder to you than Jesus is deforming your mind and deforming your heart and destroying your life. And so sometimes in life, it could be, you could have been traumatised by your parents your family, your siblings. You could be traumatised by a tragedy, a crisis, and that continues to control your life, that continues to affect you so much, mentally, emotionally. Sometimes it could be a broken relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband and wife who, who left you, who dropped you, who, who betrayed you, that's now speaking a louder word, a louder word into your mind all the time, a louder word into your heart. What is it that is speaking to you? Who is it that's speaking to you and is louder than the voice of God speaking about His Son, the good news about Jesus into your heart? Right now, as the whole world suffers, experiences this pandemic, anxiety and worry about getting infected could be causing some of us to cross the line to be mentally unwell, to cross the line to obsessive-compulsive disorder, that instead of washing for hygiene, we are washing compulsively to the point where our, our skin is falling off. Right now, we could be worrying and being anxious to the point of being paralysed, that we see no hope in the future, whether we are in school, in university or at work. And I want to say to you, all those are the wrong voices to listen to. It's the voice of Jesus above them all. That's why the song was sung. Nothing takes God by surprise. Do you believe that? I'm not asking you, do you believe in Colin, who wrote that song? Because behind that very catchy song are the deep truths of God. Do you believe that nothing catches God by surprise? Many things may catch us by surprise. And that's why He is God and I am not and you are not. And listening to God speak over our circumstances, about our circumstances, and how to overcome our circumstances is truly a journey of faith. That is the important thing. And so the transfiguration showed the glorious side that Jesus will suffer, He will die, but He will rise from the dead. Please don't judge a book wrongly by its cover. Please don't judge Jesus simply by the cross because after His death on the cross comes the resurrection where He will be enthroned to sit at God's right hand and rule as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen to Him. He is King Jesus. He's Lord of this virus. This virus is not Lord. He's going to bring a good outcome out of this. And the best outcome out of this is that He's going to draw you out of the pride of your life, out of the false confidence of your life, as He does with people like Eugene O'Kelly, who at one point sits at the mountaintop and you could see only one view, I'm on top of life, 
until we are told that in a matter of months, we will pass away. We do discover ourselves from the mountaintop to the valley experiences. And here is the mountaintop experience of Jesus who will clarify who He is and clarify who we are in relationship and only in relationship to Him. Listen only to Him because only He truly matters. And so it goes on to what we call the valley of Jesus' suffering. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him. In all likelihood, they were still in Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was a Gentile area, a prosperous area known for various things. It also had uh, temples to idols. It was also a, a headquarters. And if he was there, then it was the Gentile father. And he came to him, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures. And he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So what is happening here? Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why? Why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So, context is very important. Jesus and his disciples, the inner circle, Peter, James and John, they walk down and they walk back into a world. So they walk down from that glorious moment of transfiguration and they walk back into a world of sickness, a world of disease, a world of decay, a world of death. They walk back to a world of sickness, a world of Satan as shown in the demon, a world of suffering, as the Father says. My son is suffering. And so, Jesus, when we read the account, is not so much disturbed, he's not so much facing the illness of a boy. He is facing the illness of a boy. But more so, he is worked up by the ineffectiveness of faith. Among who? Among his generation, beginning with his disciples, who have witnessed his, listened to his words and witnessed to his works, his miraculous works. And so Jesus is worked up by this. You still do not believe, which leads us to ask many questions at this point, as the spiritual lessons of Jesus is punched home to us. And so Jesus would have been pleased with the faith of a Gentile father. He would have been pleased with the faith of Jewish disciples, of his Jewish nation and Jewish generation. But what is the most precious commodity? The most precious commodity now is finding a vaccine. Understandably so. 
And as long as we don't find the vaccine, life is not going to resume in all its normalcy where we won't approach another fellow human being and say infection, infection, possible infection, possible disease, possible death. When are we going to come back to that normalcy of behaviour until we find a vaccine? But this will come and this will go because pandemics have come and pandemics have gone in all the previous centuries. But the most precious commodity from God's view is actually faith in God by putting faith in God's Son. And putting faith in Jesus as glorious yet suffering Messiah, which at this point, they still couldn't see how the two things came together. They thought that God would send a powerful Messiah, a powerful military Messiah that will free them from Roman rule. And once you kick out the Romans, once you cure this pandemic, we will have no more problems. We always mistake our temporary problems, our temporary dangers from our real problem and our real dangers. And the real problem and the real dangers here is Satan, as shown in demon, as in this account, as shown in sickness, as shown in sin, as shown in suffering. Jesus comes to do this, to cure us of this. And so what is the most precious and powerful commodity that God is asking us to embark on? It is this Satan-crushing, demon-destroying, sin-cleansing, death-destroying faith in Jesus. This is the mountain-moving faith that Jesus speaks about. If you believe in Him and you get the true picture, the glorious side of Him, the suffering side of Him, then it is this that will save you from your true enemies of life, Satan, sickness, sin, and finally death. If only both Jews and Gentiles had faith in Jesus. This is the faith He's asking for. And this is the lack of faith He's condemning. And you will read the gospel on any of the four gospels with some care. Who Jesus commends their faith and who Jesus condemns the lack of faith is vitally important. If you read Matthew's gospel, he commends the faith of the paralytic and his friends. He commends the faith of the Gentile. He commends the faith of a woman. He commends the faith always of the outsiders. He always critiques and condemns the lack of faith, beginning with his disciples and of the religious leaders of Israel. So, do you believe that faith in Jesus as the suffering and yet glorious Messiah, God's end-time King, is the most precious commodity that God wants to call you to and offer you, and the most powerful thing you need in your life? Which leads us to ask a few questions. I've got four to ask of myself and four to ask of you. And what are the four questions? The how long question. How long are you going to take your time to make up your mind about Jesus? And some of you may have gone to what we call mission schools all around the world. But in going to the mission schools from primary school to secondary school, you totally missed the message about Jesus every week as he was preached in the chapel. How long are you going to take your time? You perhaps grew up in a Christian home and you grew a bit cold, lukewarm, blasé about this and say, Jesus, Saviour of the world, Jesus came to defeat Satan, cleanse me of my sin, wash me clean and defeat death for me. Uh, I've heard that story. How long are you going to drag your feet? 
How long are you going to hang around the wrong company that's leading you away in youth fellowship or your young adult group or whichever age you're in? How long are you going to cloud your thinking with? There are so many different views and different religions out there. Why, why can't they all be right? Because Jesus, God said there is only one way. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. How long are you going to miss this revelation about Jesus? When God says, I approve of Him, He's my beloved Son, how long? How long before you destroy your own heart and your own home? That's the how long question of faith. Then comes the how serious question of faith. Let me ask you, how, how do you feel, right, when people keep getting your identity wrong? Okay, so my wife's name is Mona, M-O-N-A, as in Mona, Lisa, Mona, right? But in some of the places I go to to preach at conferences or mission spots, I have told them I, my wife's name is Mona, but maybe a different culture or they're not so good with names. Uh, how often they've, they've asked me, how is Monica? And I've, I've told them, I do not know who Monica is, but my wife's name is Mona. Then it's just so, so, so sorry, I, I meant Mona. And sometimes within a dinner conversation, a lunch conversation, when they bring me out, they could make the mistake a few times, a few times. They will call Mona, Monica. Mona, Monica. So at, by the end of that dinner, by the end of that conversation, I, I agree with them that my wife's name has now been changed to Monica. You don't like it, right? When people don't get your name and identity correct. So, how long are you going to not get this right? Jesus means God saves. The Christ means God's end-time chosen king to bring in his end-time solution against Satan, against sickness, against sin, and to make us the children of God when previously we were the enemies of God. How serious are you? Then it leads us to how powerless the question. Jesus actually commends the Father's vicarious faith on behalf of his son's suffering. He said, bring, bring, the son, bring your son to me. I hear this. And how often when we don't have faith or we lack faith, our faith is little, how often we miss meeting people's real needs when we ourselves don't really believe, when we ourselves, even though we call ourselves Christians, who go to church, who maybe tune into online services even now, but in our hearts we reject, we don't tap into, we don't draw upon the simple faith, the size of a mustard seed, that Jesus is who He is. God saves the end-time ruler who has come to give us Satan-crushing, sin-cleansing, death-destroying new life in Himself. Size of a mustard seed. A lot of mustard seeds here from my trip in Israel. So want me to open this up? And if you haven't been and don't know what a mustard seed is, our camera cannot zoom in, but... Uh, it's the size of this. You can't see it. It's like the size of pepper on my palm, right? It's so small. And that's the point here. To put faith in Jesus is not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God. Who do you think He really is? And then the fourth question to ask, is the knowledge and faith question. 
So often our knowledge of God grows, and I'm quoting this from one of the commentators, but our dependence on Him shrinks. Could that be a description of some of us? Maybe as Christian leaders, maybe as pastors, maybe as elders or deacons, Bible study leaders, that our knowledge of God is increasing, but our faith in Him is shrinking. Our dependence upon Him is shrinking. And is that coming to the fore? You and me know the Bible so well. We know so many books. We can recite some verses. But how come I'm filled with anxiety? I'm filled with worry. How come I'm, I'm panicking every day? How come? Good time to search our hearts. And Jesus is the model of faith and prayer. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. I'm now in chapter 14. And Jesus' answer to them is, he said to them, this kind you can only do by prayer and fasting. And what does he mean by prayer and fasting? You look at Jesus' own walk of faith in his, with his heavenly Father, you would find him always praying, always praying. Seldom do we find a record of the disciples praying, but you will find a record of their rabbi and their master praying. Now when Jesus heard this, heard that John the Baptist had been killed, beheaded, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, obviously to pray, obviously to commune with his heavenly Father, obviously to draw strength and wisdom from his heavenly Father to carry on with his mission because John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the Elijah that was sent, but the Elijah that was killed. But when the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot. Then in 1422, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, guess where he went? Favourite places of Jesus. He went up to the mountainside or he went out to the wilderness, the desert, by himself to pray. We cannot do the work of the Messiah without following the pattern of our Messiah. Too many of us know the Word of God but do not know the Messiah who prays and communes and depends completely on His heavenly Father to fulfil the kingdom of God. And so it's time for us to repent. Which of these faith questions most applies to you? Which of this? The how long question? The how long are you going to drag your feet? How seriously are you taking this? And how powerful is this name? How? Only through prayer. The final portion for today. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma texts went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open out its mouth, you will find a shackle. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself 
after us. Very, very important that we understand the background. We can only but summarize this portion. And what's the summary of this portion for us? The first thing to note is, why is it that only Matthew records this? And some say, of course, it's totally understandable. It's totally expected. Matthew was a tax collector. So any account that has to do with tax collectors or taxes, he will record. Answer is yes and maybe no. This is a very important account for what reason? Context. This was about a temple tax, a patriotic tax to upkeep the temple even as they were colonised by Romans. And so all Jewish men had to pay this tax. But the re religious teachers were exempted from this. The rabbis were exempted. But because Jesus wasn't an official rabbi, but he obviously could teach God's word with great authority and crowds of thousands followed him. And Jesus has started to explain that he is the Son of God. As the Son of God, going into God's temple, he should actually be exempt from this text. And he gives the illustration of kings and sons. If, this, uh, if it's a king and the son, and the son doesn't have to pay that tax. But he insists on paying this tax. Why? And I think there's a personal and prophetic lesson. Jesus says, pay the tax. To who? By this time, God's temple in Jerusalem had become a corrupt temple, a temple bankrupt of spiritual truth, the glory of God, morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, and to bankrupt morally corrupt office holders, chief priests, priests, and all who were part of that system, that, that ecosystem. But Jesus says, pay the tax, even to a corrupt temple and the office holders, who will arrest him and kill him. And what will this be? This will be a display of his faith in God. And what is faith? It is faith expressed and experienced in obedience. So you and me can say, I have faith in God. And faith. As long as we don't obey God, we don't step out in obedience, our faith in God is dead. So beginning with the father of Israel, the father of faith, he stepped up to obey God and went to the land God called him, now to the fulfiller of that faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is always expressed in obedience to God, in obedience to his word. So Jesus' faith is what causes him to be obedient to death. It's this faith that will cause him to be sacrificial, to be self-forsaking and self-forgetting. And so he says, pay it, and instructs Peter to do this and instructs him to do this. Go and find this fish, and out will come the shekel, and you will be able to pay not just for yourself, but also for me. So what can we learn as we draw all the strings together? What or who is louder than Jesus, is speaking louder than Jesus into the world, into our nation, into our hearts, into our homes. We are called by God to listen to Jesus because only He will be standing. The Moses in Elijah will fade. And faith in Jesus, 
the suffering but the glorious Jesus will be the most precious and powerful thing that you need to believe in Him, both for life and for eternal life. And so, I have there, maybe we can turn it off, and let me read from an article that I chance upon. Right? And the article says this, allow me to read this. God in His Word, the Bible, tells us we have sinned by rebelling against Him, His rightful rule over us. As a consequence of our sin, we now live in a world of disease, decay and death. This is the present order of things. This is the life we expect without God. This is the world we expect without God, a world of death, moaning, crying and pain. Revelation 21. So God is God and God is true. Yet the world we live in and the life we live keeps denying sin, keeps denying disease and death as the real state of affairs. We banish the word sin from our daily vocabulary, but we experience sin in our daily lives. We confine the sick to hospitals while we work on the glow of good health in our gyms. We send the aged to old folks' home to postpone the reality of death. We actually do a pretty good job of living without God, living without sin, living without disease and death, living without God in short. But ever so often though, in a time like this, the truth of God breaks out, which is more potent than a virus. The truth of God breaks out of our quarantine. The truth leaks out from our hospitals. It shouts out from our funeral parlours. We pretend we are unafraid of death. We're only afraid of nurses in their uniforms at crowded places. They say, the weaker the argument, the louder the voice. We do live in a world of sin, disease and death. When we live with such a fierce denial of God, we swing between optimism and pessimism. You may be able to read in the fine print on the left-hand side. This was an article I wrote in 2007 when SARS broke out. It's entitled, If God is God, There Will Be SARS. Right. 2003, sorry. But now 17 years later, we are going through the same denial as we face a pandemic. Once we solve this virus, life will resume as normal. We don't need to think twice about Jesus. In fact, we can put him on the sideline and back burner. We don't need to think seriously about his name, about his mission, who he is, and life will get back to normal because science will solve it. Science will not solve this problem. Politics will not solve this problem. Nothing will solve the problem that we have with God. We are God's enemies until Jesus and faith in Him makes us, turns us from the enemies of God to the children of God, to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So the glory and the suffering, the mountaintop experience and the valley experience of Jesus' life is to get as complete a picture of Him as possible. And this complete picture of Him is what will bring you to a complete picture of yourself and myself. And I pray that during this time, working out the identity of Jesus and working out your true identity and your true purpose for being here on earth and your true destiny, if it's not death, 
can only be sorted out if you humbly listen to Jesus. So we're going to sing a closing song. And the closing song by our brother Colin Buchanan, again, graciously, he's leading us, is Jesus Strong and Kind. And the lyrics capture for us that we are going to thirst for meaning of life and we will only be satisfied when we find it in Jesus. We are going to be weak in life as we are very weak now. That's why all of us have to be homebound. We have to do home-based learning. We have to work from home. We cannot go out and live and exercise and relate normally. He is our strength. When we fear, He is our shield. When we are lost, and can I say, beginning myself, the whole world is lost. You are lost as to what's happening. Jesus comes to us. And Jesus meets us and comes to us at the cross. And at the cross, you meet the wrath of God and the mercy of God. You meet the might of God and the mercy of God. Let's turn to God in prayer. You alone are to be glorified. You are to be praised, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son. As we listen to Jesus, we come confessing that we have thirsted, hungered after the wrong things in life. Each of us pretend to be strong, but we are actually weak. We have so many fears. We try to overcome those fears by our own wisdom, by our own achievements. We are absolutely lost in life as to who we are and what we are doing here. But we thank you that in your mercy, in your grace, in your unchanging love for us, you have given us Jesus. To him we turn and pray that by your grace we would listen only to him. To find new life, to know that it is him who has come to destroy the devil's work. It's him who has come to heal us of our illnesses. It's him who has come to wash us clean of our sin. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who has come to make us the children of God. May we take delight in Jesus and all that he offers us. In his mighty name we pray. Amen.